0: hello and welcome to the brain care podcast a practical and impactful series of snappy episodes on how to optimize your mental health and performance so you can reach your full potential my name is dan murray serta and i'm the co-founder at heights we make smart supplements and clever content with the world's leading experts to help you take care of your brain so it can take care of you Today, we're joined by the pioneering self-compassion researcher, author, and associate professor of educational psychology at the University of Texas, Austin, Dr. Kristen Neff. So, Kristen, I would love you to just introduce yourself in your own words to our audience.
1: Right. So, uh, it's funny, my my son sometimes, when he introduces me to people, he calls me the self-compassion lady (laughs) because I really am a one-trick pony. It is my life's work. You know, again, I didn't come up with the idea of self-compassion. I learned about it in my Buddhist meditation practice. So from that perspective, it doesn't make sense to give compassion to other people and not yourself if we're all interconnected. And so I really started it as a personal practice and saw the huge difference it made in my life. But then almost 20 years ago, I decided I wanted to research it because it hadn't been studied, you know, specifically empirically. And so that's really what my life has been about for the last 20 years. I've, I've done a lot of research on it, but even more importantly for me, the last 10 years or so, I've been much more focused on teaching people to practice self-compassion. It's not just like a, a great personality trait to have, this actually is a skill of practice that we can cultivate. And pretty much everything I do is focused on how to bring more self compassion to people in the world because it does. I mean, the research is just phenomenal. It makes such a big difference in our ability to cope, to be happy, to be emotionally resilient. So it's, uh, I'm very lucky that I found my calling in life and self compassion's it.
0: <laughs> okay. So, I mean, let's start with the basics then. So I'm speaking to literally one of the world's leading experts, if not the leading expert. So, what is self compassion? How do you define it?
1: People define it in slightly different ways, but in my theoretical model that I put forward uh, again almost 20 years ago, I really see it as having three main elements. I mean, I mean the easiest way to think of it is being kind and warm and supportive to your, toward yourself the way you might to a close friend you cared about. In other words, directing compassion inward, and remembering that compassion is concerned with the alleviation of suffering. So kind of by definition, it's always aimed at suffering and a helpful, warm, kind, understanding response to our own suffering. Uh, but it's more than just kindness alone. From my point of view, it also needs mindfulness. So mindfulness, is, as we know, is the ability to be present with what is, to not ignore it. On the other hand, not to run away with the dramatic storyline. It really gives us some perspective and balance toward our own suffering. And really, in some ways, perspective is built into the system of self-compassion because we're, we're normally used to giving compassion to others, not so much ourselves. So the very act of stepping outside of ourselves and saying, wow, I'm really struggling. What do I need to help in this moment? Has some perspective built into it. We really need that, that mindfulness, that equanimity in order to be helpful to ourselves. And then really important, the third element, which I didn't realize at first needed to be there when I was coming up with my model, but reading more and more about compassion, especially from the Buddhist perspective, um, is that it needs to take into account other people. Even in the Latin, the word compassion means passion to suffer. Come means with. You know, if I were to to pity you, Dan, you wouldn't like it because that would mean I'd feel sorry from you. I feel separate from you. But if I had compassion for you, you probably would like it because I would say, hey, I've been there. Right. There's a sense of connectedness inherent to compassion and also with self-compassion. So in order for it not to be self-pity, which is, you know, woe is me, poor me, an isolated stance, which actually isn't very helpful to be self-compassion, it must mean that I, I recognize, hey, I'm a human being. I'm flawed like other human beings. I don't feel alone in the fact that I make mistakes, that I that I fail sometimes, that life is difficult, and that sense of connectedness inherent in self-compassion is actually one of, one of its most powerful features. So, three things: kindness, mindfulness, and common humanity make up self-compassion.
0: So, those are like the three elements of self-compassion, as as you talk about, right?
1: Yes, right. And then and then empirically in terms of I created a scale to measure it. I have the three elements and kind of the presence or absence of them. And believe it or not, psychometrically it seems to hang together as a system. 95% of the variance in item responding on my scale is is explained by this general construct of self-compassion. So empirically it does seem that these three things uh, operate in tandem.
0: What are some self-compassion myths?
1: Uh, One myth is that it is self-indulgent, right? And I have to say, journalists feed this myth. They always title their self-compassion articles with things like, give yourself a break, go easy on yourself. Well, to alleviate your suffering, sometimes what you need is to give yourself a break, but sometimes what you need to alleviate your suffering is to work harder, right? Self-indulgence means short-term pleasure at the expense of long-term harm. And self-compassion is always about health and well-being alleviating suffering. You know, really taking your own uh, wellness seriously and doing what you can to help. Another myth is that it's selfish, right? People think that, like, somehow self-compassion or the compassion is a limited quantity. So I only have five units of compassion. If I give three to myself, I'm only going to have two left over for someone else, right? That's a real misconception of how self-compassion operates, You know, the more compassion we have, the more resources we have to sustain giving to others. So what we know from the research is people who are more self-compassionate, you know, they have more compassionate goals in relationships. They make better relationship partners, they're more giving, they're more intimate, they're less controlling. And really importantly, they're less likely to burn out, especially like family caregivers or professional caregivers. Again, the more you resource yourself by caring for yourself, including for the pain of caring for others, the more resources you have available to sustain caring. So that's a big myth. Another big one, and I think this—I think gender roles play into this. Um, so for women, the slightly bigger concern with self-compassion is that it's selfish because, of course, women are socialized to be self-sacrificing and to meet other people's needs. Everyone has these myths, but what comes up more strongly for men is the belief that it's weak. And I think that's partly because compassion is part of the traditional female gender role women are less empowered in society so we only think of like softness nurturing gentleness Uh, in fact what the research shows very clearly is self-compassion makes you incredibly strong and resilient so you know whether you're going through a difficult situation like in your family life going through a divorce raising a special needs kid or something difficult in your life is happening whether it's covid the pandemic uh, or whether it's something really difficult like you're facing combat right what we know from the research is self-compassion makes you stronger when you go into battle whether it's real battle literally or just the battle of life people are less likely to have post-traumatic stress syndrome if they have self-compassion they're more able to deal with their difficult emotions as they arise you know being an ally supporting yourself is obviously going to make you stronger than being an enemy shaming yourself cutting yourself down the number one myth, and we actually know this in research, the number one block is the belief that it's gonna undermine your motivation. People really believe the myth that they need to be hard on themselves, harsh with themselves, like using a whip, harsh self-criticism to get them to be motivated to try to do difficult things. And again, first of all, it does kind of work. Just like we know corporal punishment with children, it, it kind of works. Yeah, it will get children to be compliant. And with ourselves, it will get ourselves to be compliant, maybe to do what we need to do. But it has a lot of unintended consequences. For instance, it creates performance anxiety. So if you're so afraid that if you try and you fail, you're going to you know, beat yourself up, that creates anxiety, which actually undermines your ability to do your best. It creates fear of failure. People, you know, are afraid to try because they know they'll beat themselves up if they fail, and fear of failure also undermines motivation. So self-compassion is a more effective motivator. The research shows pretty clearly it's a more effective motivator than self-criticism, right? It's it's a truism that failure is our best teacher, but when we fail, if we shame ourselves and criticize ourselves, that actually undermines our ability to learn from our failure. So self-compassion sets up the stage for more effective motivation. And so once you kind of get over those myths, people say, oh, OK, well, maybe I'll give it a try. <laughs> and then they can see for themselves that it's very helpful.
0: Can you talk to us about what self-compassion is not?
1: Right. So, so one of the things I've tried to differentiate um well, actually, when I first introduced the construct to the field, I had just come off of two years of postdoctoral study with one of the um, leading self-esteem researchers in the U.S. And it, when I was doing my postdoc work, I, I started getting aware that the psychological literature, which is, was really having a backlash against self-esteem. So self-esteem, if you define self-esteem as a, as a positive judgment of self-worth which is different than compassion, which is kind of being kind and understanding to yourself and recognizing that everyone's imperfect. So they're both sources of self-worth, but self-compassion is unconditional. Self-esteem is usually pretty darn conditional. It's conditioned on uh, being special and above average which is a problem because by definition we're average, right? So it leads to things like bullying and putting other people down or self-enhancement bias as a way for us to feel good about ourselves. That creates disconnection between people. Uh, It's also contingent on success, whether that's success in the sense of, you know, your job if it's important to you or sports if that's what's important or um, being popular, other people liking you. And by the way, it's not how much like your mom and your best friends like you, it's how much other people at work or out in society like you. And, and who really knows how, what people think of you. And it's like a lousy source of information. It's contingent on that. And it's actually really contingent on perceived attractiveness, especially for women, right? Because our worth was kind of valued on how attractive we were to a man. And that's that's a problem, right? In the sense that all these contingencies lead to a lot of anxiety. Self-esteem can be linked to narcissism, it, and it's also linked to instability of self-worth because it's, you know self-esteem is a fair-weather friend; it goes up and down depending on our latest success or failure. Whereas self-compassion is an unconditional friend, a stable friend, is linked to a much more stable source of self-worth because it's there, especially when we fail or feel rejected or things aren't going the way we'd like them to. So it has all the benefits, mental health benefits of self-esteem without the downsides.
0: Okay, so what are your top tips and techniques for practicing self-compassion for listeners?
1: Well, so the good news about self-compassion is it's not rocket science. It's actually not difficult to do. And that's because most of us by the time we're adults have a lot of experience with being compassionate to others. And I like to use close friendships as as the ideal context for understanding what compassion looks like. Because, you know, our friends are, friendships are voluntary. And if we aren't compassionate, if we're, you know, they might leave us. So we've kind of figured out, okay, how, how am I there to support someone? That's kind of what defines what a good friendship is. And so very simply, you can just ask yourself, let's say something difficult happens for you, okay, how did I just talk to myself? What did I say? What was my tone of voice? What was my body posture? Is this what I would say to a good friend I cared about who was going through a really similar situation? Usually the answer is no, right? And then, so a very easy hack, so to speak, is just to say, okay, how would I treat a friend and then treat yourself the same way? So that's one thing, just what you say, how you say it. Um, also, a really easy way is physical touch. And that's because in, in many ways, compassion, we're actually evolutionarily, it's built into our physiological system. The mammalian care system is designed you know, for infants and also group members to feel safe and cared for and supported when they're physically close to others. So touch, for instance, is a very important signal of care physiologically. Touch, we know, activates uh, the parasympathetic nervous system response, releases oxytocin, helps us feel calm, safe, relaxed. So something like putting your hand on your heart or hands on your face. We we do a lot of these gestures naturally, unconsciously, when we're frightened or scared or, you know, need some support. So when you do it consciously, like, this is really hard. I'm going to really try to be present for myself. It's touchy-feely, but there's a scientific reason why it works. So use it. You know, that's a really easy way to be compassionate to yourself. And then there's also, uh, I spent the last 10 years with my colleague, Chris Germer, developing practices in what we call the Mindful Self-Compassion Program that are empirically shown to to increase self-compassion skills. So you can do meditations. There's different exercises we've developed.
0: Amazing. Kristen, it's been a massive pleasure. Thank you. So go check out selfcompassion.org or just type in selfcompassion into Google and see what comes up. You will find Kristen everywhere. So look forward to chatting on the next episode. Thank you, Dan. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Brain Care Podcast. Don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And follow us at Your Heights on Instagram and Twitter for daily doses of brain care. If you want to know more about how healthy your brain is, you can head to yourheights.com forward slash brain health to get your free score from 1 to 100. See you next time.